Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. By 1960... 17 African nations had obtained their independence by revolution. A successful Marxist revolution had also been carried out in Cuba. Three years later, in early March 1963, three separate Canadian Army barracks, two in Montreal's centre and one in Westmount, were bombed. A communique entitled, Notice to the Population of the State of Quebec, was released, which went on to say, Students, Workers, Farmers, Form your secret groups to fight Anglo-American colonialism, independence, or death. A few weeks later, on April 20th, 1963, Wilfred Vincent O'Neill went to work as a night watchman at an army recruitment center in Montreal. He was a month away from his pension. Little did he know that early in the evening, two men under the cover of darkness had placed a crudely made bomb amongst garbage cans at the rear of 772 Sherbrooke Street West near the entrance to McGill University. As he made his rounds and performed his duties, Wilfred O'Neill dislodged the package and died in the blast. His death and the previous explosions awakened the rest of Canada to the fact that Quebec had gradually been changing. It no longer fit the idea of a rural, agrarian, church-led society, and Quebec was not willing to remain subservient either. And while the rest of Canada caught up to what was perceived as a quick change in values, the fact is, it took decades to get there. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X, and today we're looking at the Quiet Revolution, the most transformative time in Quebec's, and possibly Canada's, history. In researching and writing this episode, I was struck by something I rarely encounter with this podcast. I didn't know where to start. The Quiet Revolution is such a deep and complex subject that finding a starting point was difficult. Do I start with New France and its relationship with the Catholic Church? What about starting with Confederation in 1867? That seems logical, right? It is when the province of Quebec was officially formed. Of course, Quebec had existed in some form or another for centuries. What about starting with the first year of the 20th century? Why this year? Well, it's the first year of the 20th century. The century that saw a total transformation of Quebec. You see the problem? There's too many options. The Quiet Revolution didn't have a definite start date. It's more like a snowball, with a variety of events and things coming together to build it, 
until everything reached critical mass and rolled down the hill as an unstoppable avalanche. So deciding to do this episode right, I decided to go through a recap, but first, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. All the way to the Vikings. Catholicism arrived in Canada, if we're being technical, with Leif Erikson landing in present-day Newfoundland around 1000 CE. Five centuries later, in 1497 CE, Jean Cabot claimed Newfoundland for King Henry VI of England while also raising the banners of the Pope on the island. Skip to 1608 when Samuel de Champlain founded Quebec City, the first Catholic colony in what became New France. The Catholic Church soon became the dominant force in New France, particularly after the death of Samuel de Champlain in 1635. Over the decades, communities were established along the shores of the St. Lawrence River and most of the settlers were Catholics. The Jesuits also moved across the land, converting the indigenous population to Catholicism. The Company of 100 Associates was formed in 1627 as a colonization company for New France, and under the second article of its charter, New France could only be Roman Catholic. This led to about 15,000 Protestants to settle in New France while also hiding their religious background. Fifteen years later, in 1642, the Catholic Church sponsored a group of settlers from France and they founded the community of Ville-Marie, which became Montreal. Then, almost 20 years later, in 1661, King Louis XVI enacted several anti-Protestant conventions throughout the French Empire, which forced the conversion of Protestant children to Catholicism in New France. At the time, England and France were not friendly. The Anglo-French War had happened from 1627 to 1629, followed by the Anglo-French War from 1666 to 1667. England had also become Protestant the previous century, while France remained Catholic. With people settling in New France, the home country of France wanted to make sure that everyone there were Catholics. Eventually, everyone believed to be Protestant was banned from settling in New France. Protestants would only be allowed to summer in New France and could not spend the winter there. Now fast forward a century to the Seven Years' War. New France was conquered by the British during the war in 1759 with the Battle of the Plains of Abraham and the subsequent attacks on Quebec City and Montreal. New France was officially ceded to the British with the Treaty of Paris on February 10, 1763. New France was now part of the British Empire, itself overwhelmingly Protestant, but the people living in Quebec were allowed to practice Catholicism. This decision ensured that those living in what was previously New France wouldn't have to practice their religion in secret, and as a side effect, the power of the Catholic Church in Quebec solidified and grew. Then, when the British North America Act of 1867 came into effect and formed the Dominion of Canada, it preserved the Roman Catholic confessional school system of Quebec. Quebec joined Confederation in 1867 and the power of the Catholic Church had reached its height. In the province, the Catholic Church and its supporters promoted values of a traditional society by pushing the importance of God, family, rural life, and the French language. Due to the efforts to preserve French culture and the French language, the Catholic Church remained popular, especially in rural areas. Meanwhile, in the rest of Canada, there were initiatives to remove French and French culture, as seen in Ontario's Regulation 17, which sought to limit the instruction of the French language in the province's Catholic schools. Then came the conscription crisis during the First World War, which further solidified the desire of Francophones to protect their culture. Conscription was implemented nationwide to bolster the Canadian military in the war, despite overwhelming opposition to it in Quebec, and many in the province felt they were ignored by the rest of Canada. In the wake of the conscription crisis, 
a new man emerged who personified the defense of Quebec's provincial autonomy. He was also a staunch defender of French heritage and the Catholic Church, Maurice Duplessis, known as Le Chef, or The Boss. As Premier of Quebec, Duplessis led the province longer than anyone else in its history, and he held near total control. He led Union Nationale, a conservative party which often had the support of the Catholic Church. During election campaigns, Union Nationale leaned into religious imagery with its slogan of Heaven is Blue, Hell is Red. Back then, as with today, blue was the color of conservative parties and red the color of liberal parties. As soon as Duplessis was elected Premier in 1936, he hung a crucifix in the Quebec legislature to show his commitment to the church as the province's leader. So much for separation of church and state. In Duplessis, Quebec, the church was everywhere. The Roman Catholic Church oversaw primary and secondary education in the province. This meant that there were 1,500 Catholic school boards in the province, and each one set their own curriculum. Also, there was no provincial oversight because there was no Minister of Education and there was little government involvement. Teachers typically came from the Roman Catholic clergy or members of the Catholic religious orders. In Quebec, 11% of Francophones finished grade 11 and only 3% of Francophones went to university. Many young people began working in their teens rather than finish school. And due to the control of the schools by the Catholic Church, only the elite tended to move on to university. I was unfortunately unable to find the figures for Anglophones in Quebec. Claude Brulé, who taught at a classical college near Montreal, stated, Our mission was to train the elite. We had some sons of working class people. To be able to get financial help, they had to have a recommendation from the parish priest. The three Francophone universities in Quebec, located at Laval, Montreal and Sherbrooke, all had Roman Catholic charters, and the church's control went beyond education. Most hospitals were run by the Roman Catholic religious orders. Francophone nurses formed a major part of the medical workforce of the province and the Roman Catholic Church dominated nearly every facet of the province. Social and welfare services, charitable organizations, orphanages, and family services were all governed by the church. The government funded social services, but the church was the administrator. Unions were allowed, but only if the union was Catholic, and even the media was heavily influenced by the church. If you remember from my episode about the Laurier Palace Theatre fire, the church demanded that children be banned from theatres, and that ban lasted four decades. The incredible consolidation of power by the church was allowed and encouraged under Premier Duplessis, who briefly lost power and went back into the opposition from 1939 to 1944, but then returned to power in 1944 and never lost another election for the rest of his life. Critics call Duplessis' reign as the Great Darkness, and it was during this time when the first rumblings of the Quiet Revolution began. In 1945, a former school teacher, Gabrielle Waugh, released her debut novel, Bon Hood de Cajun. To say that this novel sent shockwaves through Quebec would be an understatement. The story takes place from February 1940 to March 1940 following Florentine Lacasse, a 19-year-old waitress at the 5 and 10 restaurant. And it gave a stark and realistic portrait of those living in the Saint-Henri neighborhood of Montreal. In the novel, Florentine supports her large family, which includes her mother, Rosanna, who has 11 children. Rosanna is Catholic and not allowed to use birth control, leading to many pregnancies which take a mental and physical toll on her. Florentine's father struggles to maintain a job, making him feel like he doesn't measure up to the francophone ideal of a man. And as the story progresses, Florentine falls in love with Jean, a well-known electrician who dates her but casts her aside. 
However, he does introduce her to Emmanuel, a soldier on leave. Emmanuel falls in love with Florentine. However, she's still in love with Jean, who callously sexually assaults her and she becomes pregnant. Trapped by Jean's actions and hoping to avoid the stigma of being an unwed mother, she keeps the pregnancy secret and she marries Emmanuel. At the time, most Quebecois literature was about working class families who worked hard and were rewarded, as rural life was celebrated. But a book like Bonheur de Cajun was not something seen in the province before, and those who read it found themselves taking a hard look at their situation, often for the first time. The new form of protest marked the beginning of a profound social transformation about to hit Quebec because, after all, the pen is mightier than the sword, and the revolution was going to be printed. On August 9, 1948, Refus Global was published. The anti-establishment and anti-religious manifesto was signed by 16 prominent young Quebecers, 8 men and 7 women, mostly consisting of artists. It called for an end to the traditional values of Quebec, stating, To hell with the holy water sprinkler and the toque. The manifesto was met with harsh criticism. Over 100 newspaper and magazine articles were published from August 1948 to January 1949 condemning it. One man who signed the manifesto, Paul-Emile Boudois, lost a teaching job he had held for 12 years and went into exile in the United States. And while the impact of the manifesto was small, it did show a strong desire for change in Quebec's youth who were enjoying the post-war economic boom. That boom produced more university-educated individuals who intended school outside of Quebec, and they embraced the modern, urban, commercial, and industrial values they saw elsewhere. And even those who are not university-educated are looking for a change. And in 1949, thousands came together to create one of the most important moments in Quebec history. For much of Quebec's post-Confederation history, there was a major divide in the province which could be traced back to the Treaty of Paris in 1763. The province's working class was primarily francophone, while the upper class, which held most of the wealth and ownership of companies, was anglophone. Francophone workers were paid less and often worked in dangerous conditions. This situation came to a head on February 14, 1949, when 5,000 miners from four asbestos mines in the eastern townships walked off the job. The mines were owned by American and English Canada companies. The asbestos strike, as it became known, was a major turning point in Quebec's path towards the Quiet Revolution. The demands of the strikers were simple and very reasonable. They wanted a 15 cent an hour general wage increase, the elimination of asbestos dust in and outside the mine, a 5 cent increase per hour for night work, a social security fund, and double-time payment for work on Sundays and holidays. The workers were represented by the Canadian Catholic Federation of Labour and the National Federation of Mining Industry Employees. The companies and the provincial government saw these demands as radical, and the owners immediately rejected them. Premier Maurice Duplessis sided with the companies, due in part to his intense hatred of unions and, more generally, communism. The problem for Duplessis was that his biggest ally, the Catholic Church, was not unified in its opposition to the strike. Many in the church supported the workers, as did most of the population of Quebec and the media. The strike raged for months and featured several violent clashes between strikers and police who were sent in by the provincial government. And with each clash, support for the workers increased across the province. On March 5, 1949, the Archbishop of Montreal, Joseph Carboneau, delivered a pro-union speech calling for all Catholics to donate to help the strikers. Duplessis immediately asked the church to transfer the Archbishop to Vancouver, but the church refused. 
and this was a dramatic shift for Duplessis. And while the strikers eventually compromised and most lost their jobs, the strike's impact on Quebec society was immense. And three men played significant roles in the strike, and they would go on to influence the Quiet Revolution and the future of Canada itself. Jean Marchand, a labor unionist, was the leader of the strike. He served in Parliament from 1965 to 1976 and was even considered a prime replacement for Lester P. Pearson for the Liberal Party leadership, but he was passed over because his English was not good enough. Instead, another significant person in the strike was chosen as leader and eventually became Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Long before that happened, however, a young Trudeau travelled the world to find a sense of purpose. And upon his return to Quebec in 1948, he became a leading figure in opposition to Premier Maurice Duplessis. In 1949, he supported the workers in the asbestos strike and marched alongside them, looking less like the distinguished politician we have come to know and more like a young man with a scraggly beard, a headcloth and shorts, which led to the nickname of Saint Joseph. Trudeau was even arrested while marching with the strikers and then had a profound impact on him. The events of the strike led him to act as a legal counsel to unions in the province for the next decade, and in 1956 he released La Grive de la Mende, where he stated the asbestos strike was a seminal event in Quebec's history. The strike also inspired him to co-found Cité Libre, a publication highly critical of Maurice Duplessis. The journal was anti-clerical and criticized the hold of the Catholic Church on the province. The publication and Trudeau's work helped to revive the Quebec Liberal Party, which had lost power decades earlier in 1944, and was due for a fresh resurgence in the 1960 election. Trudeau eventually entered federal politics in 1965 and served as Prime Minister from 1968 to 1979 and 1980 to 1984. The third noble figure from the asbestos strike was Gerard Pelletier. He worked alongside Trudeau and followed in his political footsteps by entering politics in 1965 and served in Parliament until 1975. They were called the Three Wise Men by the media, and they were chosen by the Liberal Party all to run in that 1965 election to bolster support in Quebec. Meanwhile, there were several publications that were anti-duplicy in the media that emerged after the asbestos strike. Le Devoir was an independent newspaper that criticized the Premier, his government, the Catholic Church, and supported workers from across the province. Radio-Canada also emerged as a progressive voice with commentators like René Lévesque, who also wrote for Trudeau's newspaper and eventually became Premier of Quebec himself from 1976 to 1985. And by the mid-1950s, the Quiet Revolution momentum was growing, and it was about to get a very big boost from a Quebec icon and one of the greatest NHL players of all time. Maurice the Rocket Richard joined the Montreal Canadiens in 1942 and quickly became a star. By 1955, he was more than a hockey player. He was a legend who led the Montreal Canadiens to three Stanley Cups. He was the pride of Montreal and Quebec, but the drive to win came with a very aggressive personality on the ice, and opponents knew it, so they used that against him. On March 13, 1955, Boston's Hay Laco instigated a fight by hitting Richard in the head with a stick. Richard responded by hitting Laco with his stick. When Cliff Thompson, the linesman, tried to stop the melee, Richard punched him. Two days later, NHL president Clarence Campbell suspended Richard for the rest of the season and the playoffs. This divided the country as Anglophones praised the suspension while Francophones saw it as an injustice. 
Many felt Clarence Campbell unfairly punished Richard because he was Francophone. Campbell made the baffling decision to also attend the next Montreal Canadiens home game. And at that March 17th game, a canister of tear gas was thrown at Campbell inside the Forum, sparking a riot that poured into the streets. The main entrance of the Forum on St. Catherine Street, a huge crowd of people has assembled here, the number in the hundreds and the thousands. They're trying to stop the streetcars, they're on the streetcar tracks, but the uh, police at the moment seem to have things uh, well in hand. Uh, they jeer as, as the police try to push them back. The police are now forming a line and pushing the crowd back. Over 20,000 people were involved, which left several businesses damaged as 50 establishments were looted and 37 people were injured. Total damages exceeded $100,000. The riot was a clear indication of the growing tensions in Quebec and a growing sense of nationalism, and years later, it has led some to consider the event as another step towards the Quiet Revolution. And all of these events were leading Quebec to a tipping point in its history. It just needed one more thing to push it over the edge. The event came in the form of a foreseen death. Maurice Duplessis was not a healthy man leading up to 1959. From 1930 to 1942, he had two hernia surgeries and was a heavy drinker until the mid-1940s. He was diabetic and saw complications with the illness by the late 1950s as his health deteriorated quickly. He was encouraged to pull back, but he refused. On September 2, 1959, while touring iron mines near Shefferfield, Quebec, he suffered a bleeding stroke that left him paralyzed on his right side and barely conscious. Over the next two days, he suffered three major strokes. And even as he was on death's door, Duplessis exerted control over the province, creating a news blackout. The aides of the premier who withheld the news of his illness for more than 20 hours before releasing it to the public had imposed a news blackout here, which surpassed anything I've ever seen. Reporters were greeted at the town's dirt airstrip by the police, and driven to the town's only hotel, a courtesy residents said that they had never seen before. The premier was stricken as the guest host of the Iron Ore Company of Canada over on this secluded point of land. But police, both company and town police, said that no pictures were to be taken of the place. The town's daily news bulletin and its radio station, both owned by the company, carried news from Argentina and India, but none about Premier Duplessis. Duplessis lived for two more days and died at 12.01 a.m. on September 7, 1959. Three days after his death, Paul Sauvé replaced Duplessis as Premier. On September 10, 1959, while citing loyalty to Duplessis' legacy, Sauvé knew that the modernization was needed in Quebec if his party was to survive the 1960 election. So he outlined a 100 Days of Change campaign, which would involve a sweeping review of the government. He began to negotiate with Ottawa to get funding for higher education, as he has also tried to pry the controlling hands of the Catholic Church away from Quebec's educational system. But then, on January 2, 1960, Sauvé died suddenly. He was quickly replaced by Antonio Barrett, who took office on January 8, 1960 and had little time to prepare as the province headed towards an election on June 22, 1960. His opponent was Jean Lesage, a former lawyer and member of parliament who took over the leadership of the Liberal Party of Quebec 
almost two years earlier, on May 31, 1958. He believed that the province could modernize without losing its distinct identity and used the slogan of, it's time for a change. Lesage went on to win the election by an overwhelming majority. As soon as Lesage became premier in 1960, he made good on his promise of change. In 1961, Quebec joined the Federal Hospital Insurance Program, the precursor to universal healthcare. Two years later, in 1963, the Boucher Committee was formed to study public assistance and when the report was released, it recommended increased state intervention and social services to provide greater social equality. That same year, the training of nurses was secularized. A year later, in 1964, the Quebec Civil Code was changed to provide legal equality for spouses. This change also abolished a married woman's judicial restriction where she was considered a minor under the authority of her husband. And finally, there was a major change in education. The same year Lesage became premier, Jean-Paul Desbiens, a teaching brother, wrote The Impertinences of Brother, Anonymous. The book published in 1960 was a series of letters he wrote to the newspaper Le Devoir calling for an overhaul of the educational system of the province. It quickly sold 100,000 copies as it struck a chord with many in the province. But unfortunately for the author, he displeased the church and was sent to Europe for three years. But it was too late. The floodgate of change had already been opened and educational reform was coming. Premier Lesage formed the Royal Commission on Education, which appointed Monsignor Alphonse-Marie Parron as the chair. On recommendations of the commission, the Ministry of Education was finally created, which reduced the number of Catholic school boards from 1,500 to 55, and the curriculum was standardized. This also meant that teachers now had to be university trained. The mandatory school age was also increased from 14 to 16, and the universities in Laval, Montreal, and Sherbrooke all received secular charters for the first time, and the University of Quebec was established. The next big change in the province came for unions, as a new labor code was adopted in 1964, which made unionization easier and gave public employees the right to strike, and the control was pried away from the Catholic Church as unions under their control were secularized. The government also created cabinet positions focused on cultural affairs and federal-provincial relations, and the electoral map was redesigned to give better representation to urban areas, while the provincial budget grew from $745 million in 1961 to $2.1 billion in 1966. Lastly, Hydro-Quebec was formed and bought out nearly all of the private electrical distributors in the province. Then it planned to modernize Quebec's power grid, including the James Bay Project, that project, which covers an area the size of New York State, cost $20 billion to build and became the largest hydroelectric system in the world in the 1970s. These drastic changes to the province were mostly all accomplished from 1960 to 1966, and while they were welcomed by many, they created a divide between urban and rural Quebec. That became apparent in the 1966 Quebec election when Jean Lesage and the Liberals lost, while Daniel Johnson Sr. and Union Nationale, the party of Maurice Duplessis, came back into power. For the most part, rural Quebec voted for Union Nationale while urban Quebec voted for the Liberals. But there was no going back. The genie was out of the bottle, and Quebec had changed for good. And possibly the biggest change in the province was the sense of nationalism and a feeling that Quebec would no longer be subservient to the rest of Canada. The societal and economic innovations of the Quiet Revolution empowered the province to seek political independence as a darker aspect emerged. 
Remember the bombing at the top of the episode that killed Wilfred Vincent O'Neill, the night watchman that dislodged a bomb on April 20th, 1963? This was caused by a small faction of sovereignists who sought independence. From 1963 to 1970, the Front de Liberation de Quebec, or FLQ, conducted 160 violent attacks, including with bombs that killed eight people. Their activities reached a peak with the 1970 October Crisis, when members of the FLQ kidnapped British diplomat James Cross and Quebec Labour Minister Pierre Laporte, who was eventually killed. The people responsible for the crisis were arrested, and the movement died away because by then the Parti Québécois was seeking independence through political means. And the birth of the party can be traced back to Expo 67, when Quebec emerged onto the world stage as millions descended on Montreal, including French President Charles de Gaulle who proclaimed, Viva la Québec Libre! This call for Quebec independence gave the growing independence movement traction as the province had also opened Maisons du Québec, or Quebec Houses, in Paris, London, and New York. They were essentially provincial embassies in those cities. And a year later, in 1968, the Sovereignist Parti Québécois was created, with René Lévesque, a former Liberal, as its leader, and the party governed Quebec from 1976 to 1985, 1994 to 2003, and 2012 to 2014. In 1977, the party enacted the Charter of the French Language, with the goal of protecting the French language by making it the official language and restricting the use of English on signs. The party also took Quebec through a referendum on independence in 1980 and 1995, but lost both times. And this new sense of nationalism emerged during the Quiet Revolution, and Canada fought to keep the province within its borders by recognizing it as a distinct culture. On November 27, 2006, the House of Commons passed a motion officially recognizing the Quebecois as a nation within a united Canada. And none of that would have been possible had it not been for that snowball effect of the Quiet Revolution. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Quiet Revolution. Next week, I'm looking at Harold Cardinal. Information from the University of Toronto, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Montreal Star, Montreal Gazette, Biography, Canada's History, CBC, Canada History Project, and the Inroads Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.